There's a lot of speculative things you can speculate about and make your bets on. Bitcoin is just one of them. Investing is different from speculation. Investing involves buying something that makes something better. Once more unto the breach, dear friends, else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning again. Welcome to a second sort of kind of maybe exciting hour of the Personal Wealth Coach. Uh, this is Jake McClure and on the line with me I have... Jeff McClure. Um, the, who maybe heard this hour saying... Fecundity. Yep. Well, for sure heard this hour saying fecundity. We heard him say it. The Personal Wealth Coach is not only, you guessed it, a radio program. I know. It's a little strange. It's also a podcast. If you're listening on the podcast, you're going, yeah, it's not a radio program. It's also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm. Now, investment advisory firms that are registered with the SEC give fiduciary advice. Investment advisory firms that are registered with the state do that as well. What is fiduciary? It means in the truly the best interest of the client, putting their interest ahead of themselves or solely in the interest of the client. But we also do portfolio management. Yes. We also do portfolio management. That The firm, however, does not give investment advice on the radio or on the podcast. Even though we are the main people in the firm, we don't do it because we don't know all of you. And even if we did know all of you, I'm pretty sure all of you would not like all of your information shared with all the rest of you. So there's Why privacy not? concerns and there's all kinds of things that we're held to a different standard than other people. So what we do on the radio is educate. If you would like fiduciary advice or portfolio management, you need to work one-on-one -on -one with a fiduciary or two-on-one if you're, there's more than one. Personally with them. How's that? Professionally, personally work with them together in some version of communication. There. How's that for legalese? That was not a great legal thing. For no, it wasn't very succinct. Okay. Needs succinctness. like, Or at least means speaking really, really fast in a monotone. Uh, we're not giving investment advice. We're giving educational information. The information we present on this radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but have, we make no warranty or guarantee as to the completeness or accuracy of said information. There so you that's go. Legal. That's legalese. It's See, a same point, and it's not understood by anybody. But it's a bit of an oxymoron in that we're saying we're giving education and we're telling people what things mean. And then we do a really fast legalese, something that really sounds like we know what we're talking about, but maybe we don't, but maybe we do, but maybe we don't. We're explaining that. If you wanted to contact us on the air, you can do so, but you have to use our email address yes. or one of them, or both of them. You can either write to Jeff at tpwc.com or Jake at tpwc.com. That's Tango Papa Whiskey Charlie or the personal wealth coach. Well, we got a question from Jeannie about what's your feeling about Bitcoins now that they are being accepted by more businesses. Uh, I don't know of any businesses that accept them. Well, they are being accepted by more businesses. Let me say, not as a payment method. <laughs> They're being accepted as a commodity item that you might be able to make money off of investing in. Uh, Elon Musk's Tesla bought a couple of billion dollars of Bitcoin, not because they wanted to use it to buy anything, but because the bubble in Bitcoin is continuing. Uh, well, Funny, it's what's interesting is they bought $1.5 billion, the corporation did, in Bitcoins. Uh, he acknowledged that he already owned Bitcoins when they bought it, which incidentally caused the price to skyrocket. And then promptly thereafter, he said Bitcoins overpriced. So I don't know that that's significant. He said he might at some point accept Bitcoins in exchange for Teslas, but he has made no move to do that. He, he's basically said that the long term for Bitcoin is a joke. And... And if you have some time and want to sit and listen to me talk, I think this is one of those things that talking about um, the essence, the underlying factor, what a Bitcoin is, it's a cryptocurrency that's based on encryption and the speed and technology for encryption is getting faster and faster. Well, Bitcoin is still stuck in a 200 
256-bit encryption, and it's going to take a long time to move it to 512. There's, there's a lot of problems in there. There's a lot of speculative things you can speculate about and make your bets on. Bitcoin is just one of them. Investing is different from speculation. Investing involves buying something that makes something better. In other words, if I buy a piece of property and I improve it by building something on it and I turn a profit because of that, I have earned that profit and that's pure economics. It works. I have improved that. It, may, it's, it, it has a greater economic output when I sell it than when I bought it. It should be worth more money and that works out really well. Anytime you buy something that has no long-term economic benefit to society, in other words, it's not, it's not making something. If you buy even Tesla, which is overpriced and I don't recommend you buy, if you buy Tesla, at least they're making cars. If you buy a bankrupt company like Hertz, which, by the way, a lot of people have been doing, which is sort of like buying Bitcoin, they're not doing anything because they're bankrupt. All you've done is help pay back their creditors a little bit, but you certainly haven't improved the company because the company's bankrupt. The point is, anything that is purely speculation, that doesn't produce any good, that doesn't produce any utility, that's what it's called. And the best example I know of producing utility, let's say there's a company that cuts down trees and makes tables out of them after they grow the trees on a tree farm or something. Well, that's that company is creating more value because the table is worth, the wood in the table is worth more than the table and than the wood in the trees. And if they can do that profitably, that company is a profitable company. It's doing something valuable because we need tables and it should be worth more. It should be eligible to generate a profit. If you own a piece of that company and the company is generating a profit, you should be eligible to receive some money. And if you spread that around, you get a well-diversified portfolio over the long term, history has shown that you'll probably make a profit if you're patient. On the other hand, when you buy something, and this has happened all through history, the earliest recording we have of it is in 1640, the, the tulip bubble in Holland. Then in 1720, the South Sea bubble in England, where you buy something that isn't actually making any money, that's not actually making any utility in the society. It's not creating anything. It's just going up because more people are buying it and there's a limited supply of it. That always historically has ended badly. Yeah. It does, doesn't end good. And there are no long-term effects where it has ended well. And Bitcoin is one of those items. It can't be used for money because it's too unstable. Yeah. And when you're buying a pizza, you can use fractional pieces of a Bitcoin to buy things if someplace still accepts it. And that's the thing is that many people, many businesses do not accept Bitcoins for payment. Even businesses that are willing to get involved in buying and selling Bitcoin Try, I mean, there, a lot of the big brokerage firms are accepting Bitcoins as a as a investment commodity, but you can't buy anything with it. You have to sell the Bitcoin before you can buy anything with it. And that is part of the reason why there's an issue is that Bitcoin price, when you decide to sell and when you sell, could be drastically different, <laughs> even if you're only making the decision seconds apart. Uh, you click the button seconds after you make the decision, you could have you could be drastically different on the price than what you expected. And that's because there's a lot of volatility. People are treating it like a lottery rather than like uh, a, an investment. And that's one of the things that you can look at kind of across the board. When people are buying something, not because it represents any internal value, but just because everybody else is buying it, that's a big danger sign. At some point, People won't be buying it. And then what happens? Well, you'll probably have to sell it for less than you bought it for. And that is that is the issue. You know, it's kind of like somebody saying, I'm going to go on a diet and I'm going to be much more healthy because I'm just going to drink lots of alcohol. Alcohol turns into sugar, therefore it's good for me. Uh, no, that probably won't work for you. Yeah. The, the long term is that you, you got to be careful. When you're buying something that you wish to make a profit, make sure that the thing that you're buying has some methodology for making a profit besides what is known as the greater fool theory. There will always be a greater fool that will come and buy it after I. Um, let's, let's not, we don't rest on that because I have been the greatest fool a couple of times. I don't want to rely on people being more foolish than me because I have found that I can be pretty foolish. <laughs> Okay, There's one ahead. more part of it. Uh, lastly, do you believe oil and gas exploration and production equities will continue to rise? I didn't uh, see that. Uh, yeah. So this is Philip um, 
this, well, actually, this is a different question, completely different. I didn't get the question you got, and you didn't get the question I got. But uh, okay. here's the question from Philip. In your opinion, do you an- anticipate that the bears are here to stay? If so, what is your recommended market strategy? Lastly, do you believe oil and gas exploration and production equities will continue to rise? Okay. So by the bears are here to say, do you mean that we've seen a drop in the tech bubble, the the big growth bubble, or do you mean uh, an overall rising of interest rate? Because the reality is that everybody that's a bull is also a bear. And everybody that's a bear is also a bull. So when people say, are they, they try to treat it like it's two different teams, but it's the same people on both teams. So the bears are here as well as the bulls. It's the market sentiment and how they're feeling at any given moment. Expect more volatility. That's an easy answer. If you're seeing a lot of bearish sentiment, that's indication that we're in a bull market. Yeah. So if the, the bears are here to stay, this bull market will go on forever. So that's a strange question. Yeah. And what does that mean? When a lot of people are reluctant and they're scared of the market, it means that they're not in the market. That seems pretty obvious. If a lot of people say the market is great and we love it and it's going to go like this forever, whatever this is, upward, ah, yay, we love it. They're generally already in the market. They've got all the money that they're going to put in there in there. And when everybody is saying the market's great, it means everybody's already put all the money that they're willing to into the market And that means the only people that are left are people that need to sell for whatever reason and vice versa. So when there's still bears around, that's actually a good sign for the market. There is a bear market going on, by the way. More than one. Facts. Yeah. Special purpose acquisition companies, which is the give us your money and we'll figure out what we're going to do with it after you give it to us. Corporations uh, are now down on average, according to an index, down average 20% this year which indicates a good, that's another indication of health in the market, by the way. These SPACs are pure speculative companies. Some of them have worked out really well. Some of them have worked out horribly. Most of them are sponsored by and initially funded by sports stars or movie stars, which tells me that these are not experts when it comes to investing money. Right. They just basically say, give us a lot of your money and we'll figure out something to do with it that'll be profitable, which is typically an indication that we have a, tip of a bull market going but in this particular case since they've already crashed they've already gone down 20 percent, puts them in a bear market indicates people are waking up to the fact that you can't just invest in something and get the profit automatically um his his next two questions what, what if so if the bears are here what's the recommended market strategy um and our answer to that is number one be well diversified across a big big sector of of everything. So get be diversified across the economies of the world and our economy. Number two, don't get in with the expectation of selling before the bears or buying before the bulls. Get in with the expectation of owning high quality investments that have something in them that is worth buying, that people are still buying and those companies are profitable or loan money to companies that are profitable and can pay the interest that you're charging. And then you stick through it and the ups and the downs. You don't raise your income when the market's up. You don't lower your income when the market's down. You take a step back and say, what's the long-term plan? And is this reasonable? You might wind up raising or lowering when the market's shifted. But the reality is that you should be making your decision based on the long-term value, not today's value, not whether there's more bears or more bulls in the market, because they're going to come and go. They're going to be bears. There's going to be bulls. We look at it longer than that. Arguably, the best investor in the 20th century was John Templeton, who was a buy-and-hold investor. He basically said, buy good companies and hang on to them. Uh, If they're not good companies anymore, sell them. But not good companies, when they stop making a profit, you get rid of them. And the other one, the other one is, of course, Warren Buffett. Buffett, who did this. He does the same thing. You don't see him doing a lot of trading. You don't see him trying to anticipate what bears or bulls are doing. He understands what he's doing, and then he buys it if he thinks it's a reasonable price. And if you approach investing in that same way, if if you had the ability to own this entire whatever it is you're thinking about buying it, would you buy it at this price? And if you would, because you think it'll be profitable, then it's probably a good thing to do. But you need to have a lot of those, which is why most people should be in mutual funds or at least ETFs. Well diversified, spread across 
the entire marketplace, both bonds, stocks, and the rest of the world. And, and that's, and then you stick with it. And then his next question is, lastly, do you believe oil and gas exploration and production equities will continue to rise? Yeah, until they don't. Uh, natural resources is an, is an asset class that we watch. It is the most volatile asset class that we watch regularly. Precious metals is more volatile. But natural resources in general is extremely volatile. You have extreme booms and extreme busts. I think anybody that hears that, they're not surprised by me saying this because we hear about the booms and the bust, and you never hear about, yeah, things are calmly profitable and have been for the last decade here in this particular industry. Now, maybe you're talking about General Mills and Cheerios sales. They're pretty profitable, and they're kind of across the board pretty smooth. You're not talking about the natural resources marketplace. You're not talking about oil and gas. So yes, I believe in current circumstances that oil and gas exploration is going to continue, but it's already experiencing pieces of technology that are changing the industry again. Fracking came out and changed from coal to natural gas. Uh, electricity generation is, I mean, natural gas is going to be part of electricity generation for quite a long time to come. So that's going to be a part of what we're looking at. But more and more cars are becoming electric. And as that occurs, one of the legs of the stool is being gnawed at for natural resources, oil and gas. So just be aware that it's likely to do well and then bust and then do well and bust. And those busts are probably going to get smaller and the booms are going to get smaller as less and less of it is used. But we're talking decades. This is not going to happen overnight. What was it you were going to say there? Well, we had a question from John. Yes, I think that wrapped up this question. So on to John. John's question is, is a very short question. What happens when the backup plan needs a backup plan? Is it really, it needs a bailout. Is it really this bad news? He sent us a picture of a letter to the editor in the Wall Street Journal, the coming, it's titled The Coming Bailout of State Pension Plans. Right. The author of the letter, by the way, is from the R Street Institute, which is a libertarian institute and uh, doesn't basically believe in the state backing of pension plans in general. But the the bottom line to it is, yes, there will be pension plans fail at some point. They have been pension plans failing for a long time. If they're backed by the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, which is like the, which is a federally funded, not funded, uh, uh, I'm sorry, you're saying no? Uh, I'm, I'm just, go ahead with your thing. I've got some stuff to, to bring into this, but go ahead. Well, the bottom line to it is the state pension plans, which is what the headline, headline is about, are not backed by the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation. The, that, that's what I was saying no about. Yeah. The letter, by the way, is not about the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation as much as it is about, are not about state pension plans as much as it is about the multi-employer pension plans. And yes, there will be multi-employer pension plans that fail. There will be state, there may very well be. Illinois' pension plan is on the verge of failure and has been for a long time. So what I think is going to happen is really very simple. When Puerto Rico's system failed, the federal government stepped in with some guarantees. It took them a while, and they agonized over it, and they yelled about it. But the bottom line to it is you can't let something as big as a state go bankrupt. So we'll step in at the federal level, and we'll fix it. I don't have any question. We've been fixing a lot of things. We backed up General Motors when it went bankrupt. We have backed up a lot of companies when they went bankrupt as a nation because we look at it's just a matter of profit and loss. It's a matter of looking at the situation and saying, Let's just say, let's use Illinois, for example. Let's say the Illinois pension fund goes belly up, not backed by anything except the state of Illinois. The state of Illinois can't raise taxes high enough to cover their pension fund losses. Will the federal government just say, forget Illinois and let them sink? No, I don't think so, because Illinois has a huge chunk of the GDP. And you, once, it starts, once that starts happening, enough people lose enough money that it affects the national GDP to the point where it would be disadvantageous to the United States and it would actually reduce the revenue to the United States. So, yeah, there's going to be the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation will need to be backed up by Congress probably at some point. It hasn't so far, but it might at some point. 
just like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were backed up by the United States government, even though technically the United States government didn't have to back them up. Just like during the banking crisis, the United States government stepped in and backed up the FDIC. And just yes. like the Resolution Trust Corporation was formed by uh, Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush to back up the credit unions and the savings and loans that were failing. The savings and loan disaster of the 1980s and 1990s, was it, it didn't save the savings and loans. It just saved the the other people involved just like general motors if you owned stock in general motors you were you were out you you didn't make it the bankruptcy was there uh you lost your money a lot of people that were owed money by general motors also lost a chunk of their money but that's what bankruptcy is now, there's a really good article on this by the way that is well it tells you how much of a nerd we are when we're talking about this but if you go to the american academy of actuaries it's actuary.org and do a search for overview of multi-employer pension system issues this they have the absolute best information on this period there's about 10 million people period in the united states covered by multi-employer pensions what is that there was this thought in the 1970s and early 1980s that these pensions were all going to be there and each company could try to do it on its own or they could band together in a group of other big corporations that basically had the same contracts with their employees and make a big pension together. So UPS did this. A lot of big companies did this. There was a little problem in the planning. And the little problem in the planning fail to take into account that some of those corporations might not exist in a few years. That the multi-employers might have to cover employees that were not their own for businesses that failed. So about 1 million people of the 10 million people covered in these plans are in these failing multi-employer pensions. UPS has multiple pensions. Uh, there are a lot of cor corporations out there that actually have multiple pensions. And if you're looking at retiring in the near future and you're seeing you've got three pensions from the same company, it's probably because they looked at a multi-employer pension plan that they had for you and said, that's failing at some point in the last several decades. We need to start our own. Let's go with another multi-employer. Oh, that failed too. Let's make it just our own. The reality is that the guarantee of a pension has only ever been as good as the guarantor. And the guarantor, the main guarantor, is your employer. And if your employer is not around to pay the pension, just ask the people who had pensions with General Motors. It was, it was changed. It was reduced, it was sometimes significantly, and sometimes people lost their pensions completely. So this is just something to be aware of. Pensions as a whole have a lot of different meanings to them than a 401k. This is why 401ks are much more popular over time. One of the long-term, we talked about demographics earlier, and we talked about birth rates, and one of the long-term effects of this is Social Security in, I think it's 2030 now, the Social Security Commission is, is suggesting, will run out of money. Medicare is going to run out of money. The, the trust fund will run out of money. It doesn't mean that you'll stop getting paid. It'll just be that year's revenue in, in employment taxes rather than a trust fund adding money. It's really just taking so, it from the general fund right now. Anytime that you have a program that is based on the longevity of a person's life, and it will lose money if people live too long, and life expectancies keep going up. I know they've gone down the past two years, but that's a COVID thing. Life expectancies keep going up. Eventually, these companies are going to be in financial trouble. The other thing that's that's changed across the board is interest rates are too low. In other words, pension funds and government funds and everything else that have to do with pensions and annuities depend on interest rates as their primary source of income. When interest rates are running well below inflation, and they are right now, then these that indicates that there's going to be trouble down the road. And, and it's really important to take a look at any place that guarantees you money in any form or fashion. As Jake said, who's the guarantor? 
The other thing is you want to look at is, is it realistic to assume that this guarantee can be met? Yeah. Because so, yeah, the PBGC, the, the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, is not currently funded well enough to back up the, the plans that are failing. Uh, what they've done over the past several years is increased the insurance premiums on the existing plans. It's, uh, it's very similar. How they get paid for is very similar to the FDIC. FDIC charges insurance premiums to banks for the coverage. It's an insurance. Uh, the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation charges the pensions that it's covering. It didn't charge enough and it's raising its rates. It's still probably not going to have enough money on hand to completely cover the pensions, at which point the government may step in and say, we need to cover these people. We don't know. They, they might. Um, and by the way, the PBGC does not cover 100% of your pension. That's correct. It covers a percentage. It varies from year to year and as they change the rules. But the bottom line to it is you get at least part of your pension with the PBGC. On the other hand, let's say you've got a pension that's set up where your employer at the end of your employment buys a group annuity for you. Who backs that? And the answer is nobody but the insurance company in most cases, because group annuities are generally not covered by the, even the state guarantee funds. Anytime you see something that's got a guaranteed interest rate or a guaranteed return of your money, you need to ask the question, who and under what circumstances is that money coming back to you? This, uh, this is a big action item on this subject. If you have a pension and your employer offers to buy you out of the pension, this is there's not a knee-jerk yes or no answer to that, but you need to put some big scrutiny. Don't hold out and say they'll give me a better offer later. That almost I've never seen that happen. And I've heard a lot of people say, I think they'll give me a better offer if I wait. No, they won't. They've determined that they're going to do a buyout because the pension is extremely expensive. You just said a moment ago, interest rates being low. What does that have to do with the pension? Well, they're required to fund their pension. The corporations are. In, in a year where the interest rates are doing great, this is one of the problems with the pension plan system in general. In a year where interest rates are good, there's lots of profitability, it looks like the pension is overfunded. Because all of the actuaries do their calculations based on today's interest rates going forward into the future. And if interest rates are high, you don't need as much money to make money. If interest rates are low, you need to have more money in there to make the same amount of money an income. Theoretically. Theoretically. So this, this <laughs> that's a pretty... It's a pretty hard and fast rule. If interest rates are low, you make less money than when interest rates are high if you're making money on interest rates. Uh, so companies are required to fund their plans more, far more, than they were at the early 1980s and 1970s, late 1970s when these things were made. When the interest rates were in the double digits, you could actually be taking money out of the pension and using it in the corporation during that time period because interest rates were so high, the actuaries were saying, this is going to make way too much money. You don't need to pay this much money out here. Take it out and use it in your corporations. Sort of what the U.S. government does with Social Security. Uh, that's just a side note. It's not much else that the U.S. government could do with it. But when you're spending it in the general revenue, it's not invested long-term in the pension. That was some of the early problems. Then some of the employers fell out, died, went bankrupt in the, uh, in the multi-employer firms, leaving the other ones to try to shoulder the load. It's kind of like NATO if none of the other members of NATO actually spend any money on defense. One group, one, one entity would be defending everybody. So UPS, is, they've got a very, very healthy pension system as well as one that's totally failing, and that's just one example. Lots of the old line transportation and manufacturing companies generally have some portion of their employees in pensions that are failing at the same time that they're also in pensions that are not failing. So it, it's not as huge a disaster as it sounds. Those 10 million people covered in multi-employer pensions are being counted more than once because a lot of times they're in more than one multi-employer pension. So, John, the bottom line to your question 
is it happens all the time. Congress backs it up and they'll probably continue to back it up. Uh, there'll be a lot of posturing if a state pension fund goes bankrupt, like again, Illinois is not too far from it. But on the other hand, the number of people who would lose money across the country because they've invested in that would uh, be great enough that I think it would probably have an effect. It would have a knock-on effect to everybody. Now, We're in a position the federal government is basically backing the states, whether we like it or not. And it's been recognized by a lot of sophisticated investors, and I use air quotes around that, and it's not really sophisticated. It's more like vulture investing. What happened in Puerto Rico is likely to happen again. What happened in Puerto Rico, Jake? Well, the pensions were failing and the bonds were failing for the territory of, of Puerto Rico. The bonds are failing. Well, the big hedge funds jumped in and bought up the bonds because they figure the U.S. government's going to come along and bail them out and I'll get made whole. That's problematic. They did get made whole. The, the hedge funds had some losses, but their losses looked pretty small compared to all the gains they had in the process. So this is another fact that needs some scrutiny. If we have this basic underlying belief that the U.S. government's going to step in and bail out the states when they need it, and people make massive profits because they know that, there's a problem in that system. That's not a free market system. It's like somebody that hears that there's a highway coming through and they go and they buy up all the land in the area with before anybody else knows that it's going on. And then they make a big profit when the government buys up the land for eminent domain and puts the highway through. And we've got corruption in that area that's still around where people that are in the know go and buy up property and... It, comes up as scandals every few years and people go, oh, that's horrible. But then it happens again and then it happens again. We've got to build a structure here that says, number one, Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation needs to be charging a higher premium across the board. Number two, if the government is, in, is intrinsically backing these things up and we've just basically assumed that they will, then they need to come in and regulate more. I know that's hard. I, I'm a big deregulator guy, but if the government is on, if the taxpayer is on the hook to pay the bill, and they've got no strings to saying what can be promised out there, then we're all going to have high taxes. So regulation and anything that the government is backing makes good good sense to me. I don't like the fact that the government that we as taxpayers are likely to going to need to step in and 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 help out these pensions because it's not like somebody woke up this morning and said, Hey, pensions are a bad idea when people live longer. This is a conversation that the U S army has had that Walmart has had that UPS has had that every, every single major corporation on the planet has had when they're talking about retirement plans It's not hidden in the background. Pensions are hard. <laughs> so we should be aware that pensions are hard instead of saying this slow train wreck that's way off in the distance. Oh, nothing we can do about it. It's on its way here. It's just going to wreck. There are things we can do about it today to make it less expensive. And there are things that we could have done about it 10 years ago that would have been a lot less expensive. Oh, it sounds like we're talking about Social Security, doesn't it? Yep. <laughs> Go ahead. Breaking news, the Senate has just passed the $1.9 trillion stimulus bill, and there's a very significant piece in it for a lot of people. What is that? There's up to $10,000 of income tax exclusion given for forgiveness of student loans. Wow. If you it's had it forgiven. Yeah, but the point is that it opens the door for forgiveness of student, student loans up to $10,000 uh, without incurring income taxes on $10,000. The problem with uh, with loan forgiveness, which may or may not be possible to be done under executive order, is if you forgive somebody a loan, if for whatever reason a loan is forgiven, it's considered income. So a person who doesn't have much income, they get $10,000 worth of loan forgiven, and let's say they're in the 15% 
income tax bracket, they suddenly owe $1,500 more on their income taxes. Even though they got no actual money in, just debt disappeared. So now they, they couldn't make the payment, which is why the forgiveness happened. And now they owe the government who forgave them the debt. Generally, it's the government that does that, who said, you don't owe anything except now you owe something. <laughs> Matter of fact, it would cost them more in a given year in many cases to pay the income taxes than it would to make the payments on the loan. But that was in the bill, which is a pretty good sign that somewhere down the road we'll get a $10,000 uh, student loan forgiveness. Now, whether they'll predicate that on income or not, who knows, but probably across the board. And this this kind of brings to a focus. We're talking about a lot of things across here. Forgiveness of General Motors, forgiveness of pension plans. Forg- it sounds like we just want the government to give out free money. That's not what we're saying. Bankruptcy is necessary in the economy. Uh, how, how do I know this? When we look back in the past, Texas was formed by a bunch of bankrupt people. Sam Houston, Davy Crockett, Jim Bowie, go down the names of Texas. Texas, when it became a nation and later a state, led the country in bankruptcy protection laws. Because at the point when Texas became a nation, you still got to go to prison if you couldn't pay your bills in the rest of the United States. So coming to Texas was relief from that. And then something occurred in the economy of Texas early on. It boomed because it gave this pressure relief valve to businesses and individuals that couldn't make their debt payments, but allowed them to keep working and being an effective part of the economy. Now, we're not saying everybody should just get forgiven all debt all the time. That's not how bankruptcy works. Bankruptcy, number one, leaves some marks. Number two, you still have to pay stuff back. Number three, if you show that you're a frivolous bankruptcy entity, you're not going to get loans. If you're just going back to bankruptcy every couple of years, you're not going to get loans anymore. People lose money in bankruptcy across the board. People got too many loans. They maybe shouldn't have been given loans, but what if they had a great job and now they don't? Uh, We're seeing that right now. Uh, A lot of people spent their lives in credit card debt going through their careers, always making a little bit more money every year, so getting a little bit more credit card debt, no big problem until they hit a layoff or retirement. So when we talk about this at the corporate level, it's not drastically different than at the governmental level or at the state level. Bankruptcy is a necessary factor if we want the the economy to continue to be productive. If we look at how the German-led European Union came out of the Great Recession through austerity and charging everybody absolutely the, the entire amount of debt that was owed, and then look that they barely, barely got their heads out of that recession before falling into the next one, where we were out after having given GM a free pass. It wasn't free pass because none of their shareholders kept their money. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, if you were a shareholder there, you lost your money. It's not like pure forgiveness. There are are marks left from this. There is another uh, historical element to this that you probably were thinking of, and that is the fact that the United States did not want Texas as a state initially. I think it was under Rutherford B. Hayes. Yeah. Um, because it owed too much money. It was nearly bankrupt. And finally, when we were let in, uh, that wasn't under the first day. It was under Jackson. Jackson did not want to let Texas in as a nation, as a, if it was, a, it was a republic. He didn't want to let him in as a state. Even though he was good friends with Houston, who was the, the second president of the state or the country before it he was did, a state. Too much debt, too much debt. We're not going to bail him out. And ultimately, we were let in as a state because they did bail us out. So Texas kind of leads the leads the pack for uh, state bailouts when a state goes bankrupt. Right. So the concept here is that the reason why we have a Federal Reserve is the this is the bank that gives the last loan. This is the one that saves the other banks when they can't make it. If you don't have that, there's lots and lots of examples throughout history 
where there's just massive banking collapses and the economy doesn't recover for decades and decades, if ever. Uh, and so having that relief for pensions is important as well. If you would like to contact us while we're off the air or back on the air, you can do it through email. We've got email addresses at uh, jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. And we'll be back on the other side with more of the Personal Wealth Coach. And we're back with more of the Personal Wealth Coach. This is Jake McClure, and on the line with me, I have... Jeff McClure. And now, this is a conversation I've been wanting to have since the program began today. Power. Power. I want to say it in Donald Duck's voice, but my Donald Duck impersonation is not at all good. Um, the power outage in Texas. We, you and I were both participants in that particular outage, um, Texas energy independence, Texas deregulation. Oh boy. I, I don't want to be stepping on any toes here. Those of you that have listened to us for very long know, number one, we are extremely big proponents of free market. We love it. We think free market is absolutely vital that, that within reason, you can't you know, go out and beat somebody up and take their stuff. That within the bounds of good business, marketplace stuff, having a free, unregulated market is generally better. We talked about this the last several weeks that electricity in Texas is not deregulated. We call it deregulated, but it's not deregulated. The, the power line transmission to your house has one wire that gets to your house, not 12, not one for every competitor in the electronic, in the electric generation world. One. That means we have shared resources in this thing. That means there's shared costs and upgrades and upkeep there. And who, who bears that cost? What we had happen in deregulation was not complete. We didn't finish the deregulation. We have a public utilities commission. We have ERCOT, a, a not-for-profit organization on the side. And in extreme situations, part of the idea here, let's, let's kind of take a step back. What was the idea? The idea in deregulation was, number one, there were a bunch of monopolies. There still are some. If you go to, to Austin and you want to buy energy and you live within the, the city limits of Austin, you can only buy it from one place. It's owned by the Austin city. The city of Austin owns the power. And you buy it from them. It's a monopoly. It's like the old cable companies. Why were they monopolies? Well, because there was only one wire that got to your house. There's only one set of telephone poles that go out to your house. So we set up in the 1940s on, we set up a system of monopolies to provide utilities. This was not good. This was not an efficient system. Uh, prices were up. Uh, there was no competition. You, if you had a problem, there was really nothing you could do about it because they didn't really care. You couldn't go to anyone else for your, for your solution. You just had to go to one place for power. Well, deregulation in Texas has this really fantastic concept behind it of let's get the government out of this Let's set up a free market enterprise system where people are buying and selling energy on the grid and providing it to the places that need it the most based on price. If you need it more, the price goes up. So, uh, and that's, it's generally an auction based system like a market. It's fantastic. Except that the Public Utility Commission and ERCOT can come in and set the prices. They can, in, big problem time periods when there's not enough energy to go around, they can come in and raise the prices. Now, the thought behind this was this would give an incentive to the corporations out there to ramp up production of energy in high peak moments. You know, the peak power generation, we need to raise that price up so more companies have power plants running at full capacity so that they can make more money. Sounds fantastic. 
The problem is that this is not an on-time situation. Power generation doesn't happen by turning a knob. Be nice if that was the case. Any more than uh, your car will simply run every time you turn it on with no maintenance and no gasoline added to it. You have to keep the car in a manageable shape, a condition that, that allows it to actually run, and you have to fuel it. One of the problems in the power outage was that Houston was hit. This is the third largest city in the country. And it's at the point in the year when it's got the lowest average demand for electricity. At the, in, in, in February in Houston, spring is fully on. Typically, the temperature is balmy. You open your windows and your doors during February, and that's it. You don't have your air conditioning on. So during this time of the year, power companies anticipate that. They don't buy as much natural gas, that, which has to be delivered through pipelines, or they don't buy as much coal, which again, has to be delivered. Trucks, trains, coal has to get to the plant in order for them to burn it so that they can create power. So there's a ramp up to this. A lot of these companies were in ramp down mode because we're going into low demand season and they want to stay profitable. So they're not ordering as much coal, not ordering as much natural gas. And because the weather was what it was, a lot of people say the, that there were freezings that took place on the uh, wind farms. The reality was that the wind just wasn't blowing very hard, which happens. Okay, so our demand for energy rose at a point when it's usually down. Number one, weakness. Okay, that's there. Who's in charge of getting this stuff set up? Well, each individual corporation has somebody in charge of anticipating what the energy needs going to be and acquiring the right fuel for it and getting it ready. At the wind farm, nobody's in charge of that. You just, when there's wind, it turns. And when there's no wind, it doesn't. A lot of these wind farms were purchased through financing. Just like most people buy their houses with a mortgage, most of the wind farms were purchased with borrowed money. A lot of the cases, these wind farms don't pay money on their mortgage. They pay power on their mortgage. That's kind of weird. Just think of it as money, but they're paying with power. So when the wind's not blowing, they, a lot of these companies have what's called a hedged contract where they've got to buy power to give to, their, to the people that they owe money to in the time when the wind's not blowing. So they just buy it on the grid. This is, a, this is part of deregulation. There's an auction market already in existence. They just go out and buy power and use that as their payment when the wind's not blowing. This is part of the reason why wind can work so well. All right. So that's setting the, the, the foundation for what happens next. Polar vortex hits. It was semi-unexpected. It, it was going to get cold, and we knew a few days in advance, five days in advance, things are going to get cold. This happened during weekend time periods, so nobody had big emergency calls. They weren't ordering up coal and turning on the spigots for natural gas. A lot of the gas, natural gas and coal company uh, power plants, which were already on low capacity, had their water pipes freeze, which you have to thaw in order to get the water moving so that you can create the steam that runs the turbines. So a lot more natural gas and coal power plants failed than the wind farm did. However, ERCOT and the Public Utility Commission stepped in and said, all right, this is what we're intended to do. We're supposed to raise the prices now. So they took the price for a megawatt hour and they raised it to $9,000 a megawatt hour. Now, the highest it was ever in 2019 was $50. That's the highest. It generally averages right around the $22 per megawatt hour. So if you think $22 to $9,000, that's a really big incentive. The problem is that the public utility commissioner commissioners, which the chairman's resigned, 
um, because this was bad decision making. They raised it to $9,000 with no warning. They didn't say in advance to all, hey, bad weather's coming. We're going to raise this up to $9,000. They just stepped in and shut down the auction system and turned the price up to $9,000 a megawatt hour. A lot of these wind farms then had to buy power on the spot market at $9,000 a megawatt hour, which for one week's worth of power usage, their bill for that power usage is more than their entire year's revenue. So we're seeing bankruptcies in, in the wind patch already beginning, which the, the rumor around there is that New York is going to own Texas's energy because so many of the finance companies are in New York. It's BlackRock. It's, it's all the big finance companies. So we had a lot of problems here. The number one issue is that it wasn't deregulated. We call it deregulation, but when the government can step in and set a price point and shut the market down, that's not a deregulated free market. Now they're saying they're not going to reverse those charges, even though it was arbitrary because it's too complicated. There were too many trades on those charges that took place. And this is the last part I want to say. On 9-11, whoa, man, did I just change the subject? No. There were multiple hours of trades that took place in the marketplace before the airplanes hit the towers. And when the market opened back up two weeks later, it opened up as if the day of 9-11 had not occurred. All those trades were erased. We can do that in Texas too, especially when there's an arbitrary move that makes this happen. There's my monologue for the moment. We're about out of time for this week. Do you have something you want to say quick to wrap up? The only thing I have to say is if you invest in something that's a sure thing, it probably isn't. Oh boy, I agree with that. And any invest in something that doesn't produce utility. The pain may be longer in coming, but it's going to come. Infinity Q is an example. It was a mutual fund that was widely sold by brokers or financial advisors with a commission that guaranteed or promised at least that you would not suffer in a down market. And you haven't suffered in a down market because the SEC closed it because it collapsed. Woohoo! And yeah. when you liquidate, you may get some of your money back or you may not. And we're about out of time for this week. Thank you all for listening, assuming you have. Uh, if you'd like to contact us off the air, we do portfolio management and fiduciary investment advice. Uh, the local number is? 254-947-1111. You can reach that same line toll-free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's uh, radio programs going back lots of years. There's newsletters you can sign up for. You can contact us through the contact form or directly through Jeff at tpwc.com or Jake at tpwc.com. Until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.